with the uh, shut lockdown last year, we had to get both kids laptops so they could do their Zoom thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before I realized I could shut off their access to certain sites, they got access to Google. This is adorable. The first thing they did was Google their parents. Oh, that's actually really sweet. It is. And Alia, our daughter, was like, oh, um, I wanted pictures of you for my desktop. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And my my son was like, I wanted to see if you were famous. Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast where we talk about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick. And I'm Elijah Fleming. Today's episode is about O Brother War Art Thou, the 2000 comedy or comedy drama adaptation of Homer's Odyssey, written, directed, and produced by the Coen brothers. And also today we have with us a very special guest we're super excited about. Uh, Joining us is Dr. Joel Christensen, man of constant sorrow and man of many ways. As he requested to be introduced on this podcast, professor of classical studies at Brandeis and one of the brains behind Sententiae Antiquae. Thank you, Joel. Nice to see you both and hear you. Uh, nobody else can uh-huh. now. Um, thank <laughs> you for putting all this together. I haven't listened to one yet, um, but it's. Oh, it's, uh, then you don't know what you signed up for because I, it's just a load of hot garbage. <laughs> I don't, but uh, that, and I didn't ask you ahead of time if this should be fun or if I should be furious. <laughs> We, we aim towards fun, but fury is inevitable at right. in this time and era. <laughs> All right. You know, as a caveat, I don't know anything about movies. That's fine. But, well, it's actually very apropos that we have you for this episode because, well, I think the last time Joel and I crossed paths, at least, I was still taking class. I was taking graduate classes and you were guest in our Homer or seminar on Homer with Dr. Beck. So the last time I think we were sort of talking in person was about Homer. So we're going to kind of come full circle in that kind of fun way. But we, yeah, if you got the, if you got jokes, this is the place. So the first question, and we'll start with actually you, Joel, is just the general, like, are the, are obligatory, like, do you dig this movie? And then like, what's your sort of history or like, how did you first experience this, this text? So, I, I mean, I guess I dig the movie, right? It was one of the first I said I'd talk about. And, you know, I mean, anybody knows me, knows that's a very typical example, like, answer for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess... But because I've got I've got to qualify it so much, and I, I could probably go on like a straight up monologue about it, but I'll try I'll try to slow it down and focus on the moment <laughs> of uh, my first watching. Right. So this movie came out in two thousand. Right. Yeah. Was an interesting time to be alive, and I'm trying to remember what time of year. All right. So its release date was May of two thousand. Right. Uh, so May, and I I can't separate anything I talk about from biography from autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, You're like Odysseus in that way. <laughs> absolutely. And so let me tell you about this movie, right? One, it's a Coen Brothers movie. And the reason what we went to see it was at that time, if you were a white kid in college, you went to see all the Coen Brothers mm-hmm. I'm dropping that white thing there early on. We got to at some point talk about race problems in this I, movie. I have that on my docket. <laughs> what came out of it. And, you know, the first, so, you know, the Coen Brothers aren't the Coen brothers now the way they were then, mm-hmm. right? Like there were, you know- They had Fargo the, and- yeah. yeah, for all the kids, you know, who, who do grew up with Google and with YouTube, there was a time when we didn't have those things and people went to the movie theater <laughs> and network television, 
Like my kids don't understand that there was a time when you had to schedule to watch TV. <laughs> They're like, why didn't you just go online and watch the episodes you wanted? And my head explodes. <laughs> I haven't even talked about the movie yet, right? At the time, George Clooney was barely George Clooney, which is hard to imagine, but he wasn't, he hadn't reached anywhere near peak Clooniness. Mm -hmm. And the Coen Brothers like movie immediately before this that was huge was The Big Lebowski. Yeah. My first experience, I think, with Coen Brothers, probably. Yeah. I, mean, I had watched uh, Raising Arizona. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. My favorite. <laughs> yeah. Young age. And Nick Cage is in it before he became Nick Cage. Yeah. Before what, yeah. Vampire. Uh, uh... Well, even then, like, I mean, it was still believable, you know, in 2000 when I saw this movie that Nicolas Cage might win an Oscar, which he had. <laughs> Right. And it wasn't a joke, right? But with this, so this movie came out. For me, I went to see it for a couple of reasons. Reason one, I had seen all the Cohen movies, Brothers movies, and I was trying to convince my girlfriend at the time, soon to be fiance, now wife, that they should be taken seriously. Because our first date together was The Big Lebowski. Oh, I love that. We walked away from The Big Lebowski with me going, that was kind of cool. And my wife going, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Right. And that's still our relationship to the movie. Right. And there's something so there's something really Cohen Brothers about both movies. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's that. And so here's we get to the point of how do I feel about the movie? And there are a series of beautiful, memorable, quotable vignettes that don't quite add up to a whole I can make sense of. Right. So anytime I try to watch The Big Lebowski, not stoned, mm -hmm. and which is all the time now. Um, I try to figure out like how it knits together, mm -hmm. right? Like, and the effort it takes to make sense of it as a movie is far beyond perhaps the effort that it's worse worth. And it may be just worth like separating it and enjoying the pieces independently. Yeah. Right? The characters in that Jeff Bridges is amazing. Goodman, like every, all the pieces are just great. Mm -hmm. Right. But it ends like the cowboy character, the ending, the like bowling dancing. Like at the end, you're like, what happened? It like acts like it's wrapped everything up in like a very neat bow, but like. Yep. <laughs> and so, like, so you go, I, when I go back to think about Oh Brother Where Art Thou, I think about all the other movies I saw in a short, like, 18 month period. Mm -hmm. And how at the time, like, there were movies that were, there were mainstream movies that were trying to do things. And they were really pressing the boundaries of narrative. So I remember that year, was it 2000 that, um, or, or no, the following year that a Gladiator won the Oscar? Yeah, it would have been like right around now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I still have rage about that. <laughs> right? Because that was the year that Memento was up, which was one of the most interesting storytelling movies of the time. Like also movies out in a similar period, like, you know, Fight Club, which it's jokey now, but back when it came out, you, you know, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. But being John Malkovich, which was really pressing the boundary of sort of like making movies and not, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, at the time I went to see this excited, one, because, hey, it's another chance the Coen brothers to be cool. Right? But two, oh, it's about the Odyssey, mm -hmm. based on the Odyssey, which was kind of a joke at the time, right? Um, so I remember going to see the movie and thinking, huh, well, this is okay, right? But over time, my esteem for the movie has grown. Cool. Right? But what changed, uh, what happened, though, immediately after, and this is something we can probably spend an entire segment on, mm -hmm. is the soundtrack, right? So, again, kids today don't understand that movies used to come with standalone soundtracks 
that have an independent existence in the world. This is how we got kissed by a rose from Seal. <laughs> Nobody wants to remember that Batman movie. <laughs> I, I, I live it every day now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, do I want kiss from a rose? I don't know. But at the time, so more stuff. So I was a junior in college. I, was, I just read the Iliad for the first time in Greek. And I was making money online writing summaries of great books for a website that's now defunct. I got paid $800 a book. I, I print out one a week. This was before the dot-com bust, yeah. right? Somebody got angel money and they're like, oh, we need people to do this. I was like, I'll write shit online for money. I learned a little HTML and I was knocking out one a week. And I did what one does in 1999 slash 2000 when you're sitting at your computer all the time. Mm -hmm. I joined a music club, right? 10 pennies, right? 10 cents, you get 10 CDs or whatever it was. Yeah. And one of the first things I ordered was that soundtrack because I walked away from the movie with the music in my head, right? I mean, just the different artists brought on um, and the different soundscape. And at the time, again, putting us in context, we had an early 90s, a really interesting blend of gangster, rock, gangster rap and grunge rock. And then from 98, 97 on, we had NSYNC. Mm-hmm. Right. And the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. Like, it was okay, right? Um, but then suddenly you're in the theater. You're hearing, you know, folk music, bluegrass. And for me, it really struck home in a way because I, I grew up in rural Maine. I had a babysitter at a young age who played a lot of sea shanties. That's cool now. Again, yeah, that's, right? come, that's come back in a big way yeah, in this come year. Back. <laughs> I, I was in a household where I could, you know, experiment playing mandolin, banjo, guitar, 12 string. At one point I had a 12 string, a nylon string, two six strings, and a couple electric guitars. So the music at the time, it was big. Mm -hmm. It was different. Yeah. And so I spent entire that entire summer just listening to the to the soundtrack. And when I, you know, went back to the movie years later and watched it again, and we did not need to get any in any specifics yet, my understanding of what poetry and myth and storytelling was had also changed. Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, if you read interviews with the Coen brothers now, they're like, yeah, we know it wasn't really the Odyssey. We haven't even read it. I don't know if I buy that. Mm -hmm. it's yeah, we're going to talk about that. That's on my docket because I don't buy that. I... So we can get to that in a minute. I don't want to step on, on your narrative. Toast, no, it's cool. But, I have none. You know, in the beginning, I was like, well, this isn't the Odyssey. It's just another clever Coen riffing on stuff, putting together beautiful scenes that don't add up to much. Mm -hmm. right? But I don't have that feeling anymore. Right? Yeah. When I look back, I'm like, actually, it's, it is the, a very Odyssey movie. And what it leaves mm -hmm. out is as important as what it leaves in. And it's a fascinating cultural artifact. So back to the original question, do I dig it? I mm -hmm. dig it the way an archaeologist might. And I often <laughs> it because there are parts of it that have now been sort of become part of my story. So that's mm -hmm. soundtrack. Um, personally, I don't think we would have had Mumford Sons or the Lumineers. Um, for however you feel about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if not for that. I have, I have independent thoughts about Mumford yeah. and Sons and like. Yeah, there are some problems, deep problems, there, right? <laughs> but there's this entire thing that happened under a decade later. And I still to this day can't figure out whether or not, or whether that was sort of at the beginning of a nostalgic depression era wave mm -hmm. or was part of triggering it. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know how old you guys are, but in around 2008 to 12, 
Like all these prohibition era bars and restaurants and stuff started popping up, especially in Austin and San Antonio, yeah. mm -hmm. Brooklyn. They were doing that shit, right? Yeah, I was a little yeah. confused. I was like, wait a minute. I remember one of my like good friends from college when they moved and they, they lived in Brooklyn and he was telling me about, or rather her, her my, my good friend's boyfriend was telling me about, he joined like a, like a class that was like pre-prohibition like cocktails yeah. and then like proficient to explain to me like why those cocktails are better and i was like that is the most like hipster brooklyn shit I've ever yeah, yeah. We, we need to get a like prohibition era ice i remember being at a bar ordering whiskey and the guy talking to me about this special cube of ice and how it kept everything at a different temperature and at some level i was like i just like whiskey man like i, I really yeah. I, I don't the story Right. But again, they're, they're, you know, we'll get to it, but there's something wrapped up in sort of a, an American nostalgia that has to do with race, classics mm -hmm. and identity that, that's, that's really at the center of that movie. Um, and so, you know, I back in 2010, so I had a music blog with my brother that's now defunct. And I remember when I first heard Lumineers and Mumford Sons and that entire I don't know what to call it wave. Right. I mean, it's like, it's this romantics time to take American rock back to a time before R&B mm -hmm. that I found troubling in a way, right? It's yeah. melodic, but, but also troubling in a way that I also found, um, oh brother, where art thou troubling? Right. Yeah. I, just like a good Odysseus, I just gave you no answer. Um, yeah, no, but it was like simultaneously <laughs> every answer. I'm going to pivot because I went like, I have like a... Things on the docket that you like, touched on that I don't want to hit back circle right. back around to. So I gave you the, the broad the broad journey where now, we land. This is perfect because normally it's just me ranting into the microphone for like an extended period. <laughs> so it's it's really wonderful to like sort of shift shift the onus. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Eli, just real quick. Yeah. What do you got? I of course I dig this movie, and I think my experience with it I think is very nostalgic. And I love Joel that you said you dig this like an archaeologist because I. I absolutely feel that because it has a very time and place like in my life when I watched this. I didn't see it in theaters. I remember my parents renting it from Blockbuster mm -hmm. when that was a thing. <laughs> but I remember my parents introduced me to this movie because of the music. My parents grew up in the South. My mom lived in Mississippi for a long time. My dad's from North Carolina. And they love like Emmy Lou Harris, Alison Krauss, and all of these big names that were on the soundtrack. And they were like, this soundtrack is awesome. Let's watch the movie together. <laughs> so that's very much how I came to it. And I like, you know, recognize a lot of like the accents of people in that movie. They sound like my family members. And I I had the CD like in my car for the longest time. So yeah, it has a very special place in my heart and becoming a classicist after that um, is really fun to sort of look back and see like my first impressions of an Odyssey-like story um, as someone who had like very, very little thought about the Odyssey coming into it. So yeah, it, it holds a special place in my life. Yeah, I I think I had like the I have the most disparate experience for I think from YouTube because this movie like I remember at the time I remember I think sort of like the ubiquity of this movie circa 2000 2000 you know 2000 to 2002 or something like that you know it was just kind of like sort of everywhere but I don't think I actually saw this movie until much much later. Like I think I might have been in college or something like that and then at that point it already like enough time had passed that like when I revisited it you know, it was like looking, it was most, it was probably because I was sort of like, like, 
Joel said I was kind of that like hipstery white kid who just wanted to like just like go through like go back through all the Cohen movies, and so I probably watched like Fargo and then this because I'd seen like a handful in like Raising Arizona, and this was on my docket, and then like I remember like liking it, and then but now when I rewatched it, there's like so much like I like particularly like in right now like there's so many, I have like so many thoughts about just the way this movie uses the story like it's the, the nostalgia lens that like we're kind of talking about like just like the way it kind of handles race which is just like i think in like recent events have kind of thrown into sharp contrast but but yeah but i, I think like yeah i i like this movie i'm really ex- i'm really excited to talk about it today because unlike a f- other movies we've covered on this podcast where not to name names but like hercules and immortals where we kind of like exhaust the sort of thematic or like narrative things to talk about pretty quickly and then we're just like this movie's not that great but like with this movie <laughs> like, like many coen brothers movies i think there's just like so much to talk about and also i'd like like my literary critic, my brain wants to throw it into like contrast with other ones. Like, I mean, like Hail Caesar comes to mind, but I mean, I think my, my for me, like the Ur Coen Brothers movie is Serious Man, which I feel like I've talked about before on this show. I'm not sure how much it relates to this particular movie, but but yeah. So my we and like like we're not beholden to this at all, but just like the thing I that I had sort of first is just talking about this movie like as in adaptation because this is so homer is credited as a writer he's got an imdb page this is one of his four movies that he's credited with and i kind of grow angry because <laughs> i'm like guy's not even real and he's got more imdb credits than me but <laughs> the cl- the coen brothers claim to have like never read the odyssey which I, as like joel says like i don't really buy because i'm thinking particularly a- against like in fargo they famously like preface that movie with like based on a true story which is not at all true and yeah, like there might be various real life murders that may have inspired Fargo, maybe not. But the Coen Brothers always there's like two things about them in their movies is like nothing is one is like nothing is really by accident. There's like they're very like deliberate filmmakers to my, to my mind. Like everything is in there kind of on purpose. Like even like to the point where like the dialogue is meticulously scripted. Like in Big Lebowski, like every single omen man is like written out and. They also just like they kind of in like the way they in like interviews they've talked about the Odyssey in this movie in a way that sort of doesn't really it, it seems like they're more familiar with it than they're letting on and so I just wonder if it's them being kind of like coy or like kind of messing with the audience by prefacing it so upfront with like this you know quote from Homer I think it's Fitzgerald's translation but like you know being like it is Homer it's an adaptation of Homer but then it's like also we never read Homer it's just like our impressionistic sort of culturally assimilated understanding of the odyssey and if that's just like you know they're already sort of like conditioning the way we watch the movie just from the get-go because they're priming us up front with like this is a loose adaptation of the odyssey and i wonder if like had they not done it at all would that change the way we we watch this movie or think about it or like we're talking about it now well i think i mean Oh, sorry, Eli. You started. Oh no, I can just the other thing that they said. I remember it's like they started this also as a Wizard of Oz story, hmm. which like they sort of like then became into a Homeric story, which I think is kind of funny if you then try to paint like the Wizard of Oz as an Odyssey, <laughs> which I kind of like. So I I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't buy it. I guess is my is my vote. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think uh, the, the central conceit that maybe they're just fucking with us is always a good one with the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. Right? So call, 
I sort of lean into your interpretation there. But on the other hand, I'm going to go full homerist on you and ask you why it matters. Yeah, I like true because like there is my thought is really just like I'm going to bite hook, line, and sinker to this question, even though it's it's like you're leading me. But like like for me, it's like the the way I'm the way that it like wraps my brain up is like. I'm I'm conditioned to think about this movie in a certain way, knowing that it's an Odyssey takes, but, you know, and like why I'm primed to like, be like, Oh, sirens or like, Oh, you know, Cyclops or whoever, as opposed to just like, like there's plenty of stories and movies and stuff that are sort of Odyssey edit or like Odyssey stories in like vague sense, but they're not necessarily like being like it's Homer. But yeah, I mean, like, but then again, like, maybe it doesn't if it's actually, you know, Homer. Well, so so that's the thing. I mean, when I read the Odyssey, Colin, I think, as you might remember, I I read, I try to think around it, like, what if all the other versions didn't have any of this, Mm -hmm. right? And what did people know, right? So part of what happens in this telling is that you pick out pretty famous things from the Odyssey that you probably know Mm -hmm. if you just watch the DuckTales version of it. Yeah. <laughs> so how much of this is like just sort of uh, imminent cultural knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and how much of that is okay, right? So how many different versions of the Odyssey were there that t- had different takes? So I-, I look at this now and look at where they choose to end the quotation from Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. right? Where we're just talking about a wanderer harried for years on end. So clearly... They've selected, they've decided not to talk about all the uncomfortable stuff from the Odyssey, which is when he causes all of his men to die. Yeah. Yet, that part of his character, his willingness to instrumentalize others and lie to them, is part of who he turns out to be in the in the movie, right? Relying about this treasure, doing whatever he can, mm-hmm. using other people however he can to get what he wants, right? So I go back and, th- and I think, well, how is this Odyssean? Mm-hmm. In a way that makes the the uh, me makes the comparison meaningful. So back to so they suggest something, whether or not they did their own work and read it. We know the Odyssey, and so we're going to create meaning and make connections regardless. Yeah. So there, there is an old brother Rorthel Odyssey text that's getting created every time we talk about it because of our experience of the Odyssey, right? I mean, it's obsessed with the power of storytelling and song, mm-hmm. right? With challenges to identity, with how you confirm who you are, with the idea of homecoming and the threat of an endless story um, that you can't control. Like, there are some things about the thematics of the movie that are so thoroughly Odyssean. Mm-hmm. That just sort of shrug your shoulders. That was sort of my hot take on this most recent. I watched it last night. And then my sort of hot take was I, I turned to Tracy, my, my partner, and I was like, I think like, the superficial like most people when they kind of think about like adaptations of like a text or a history or whatever they tend to really zero in on like what it did or did not get quote-unquote right or like was it truthful to the source and reasons x y and z and then like this movie is like it's clearly very hand wavy about a lot of the details but like my impression was like thematically and again maybe this is just me with a graduate school's amount of odyssey reading sort of under my belt being like, I think thematically they like zeroed in on a lot of super Odyssean stuff that yeah. like it, it may be intentional and maybe purely accidental. And I may be just, you know, reading, I may be reading, but that meaning is there for, for me at least now of just like that I'm sort of maybe projecting onto the text or like reading out of it. But it, like it struck me as super like Odyssean in like so many ways. And I dare say that it's uh, its sense of Odyssean themes mm-hmm. and fidelity is 
is more meaningful than what you'd get out of an average reading of the epic mm-hmm. and great books course. Yeah. Right? If I could fault it for anything, I still, I still think, I think it's still let's Odysseus be too kind mm-hmm. right? and, too, and too lovable. But you know, uh, that that's just me. I do love the, the telling of Odysseus as like the true anti-hero as this, you know, con man i mean he's, he's kind of a dick not even kind of he's a dick like he's a total dick yeah i mean i think that he's more akin to walter white than george clooney could ever be mm-hmm. oh yeah. i love that <laughs> it's a, this is a subject for another podcast um but i think part of it is is you know the casting and the visualization this is part of what you know of why ancient literature and literature in general is can be adapted so rarely well because we fill in all the holes in our mind. Mm-hmm. We decide what Odysseus is going to be like. We cast him as someone, you know, sketchy or not sketchy, right? I think, um, you know, Phoenix from, uh, Yarkin Phoenix from The Gladiator would be a better Odysseus in a way mm-hmm. because he can play creepy. He can play skeevy. I don't think George Clooney can play bad. I just think he's too adorable and avuncular <laughs> and it's just impossible for us to hate Clooney. And this came up, I think, in a different movie podcast that I was listening to, but I was trying to wonder if, because, you know, like some actors kind of zero in on like, there's like roles they will and will not take because they know it's sort of, they might be like playing against type or like playing against image even. And I'm trying to wonder if like, if there's a movie where George Clooney is like out and out a villain or if he's always just kind of like, he's like, he, he falls on some spectrum to my mind, usually between like a suave, you know, smooth talking, maybe even con man to like maybe kind of doofusy, like in like Burn After Reading to like bring it, or in, in Hail Caesar, like two other Coen Brothers movies where they really lean into like doofusy Clooney. You know, yeah. he's like he's kind of a good looking, he's like a good looking oaf. Yeah, I'm thinking um, from Dust Till Dawn, where he's yeah. kind of like, but he's like the good hearted villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Quentin he's Tarantino like, in that movie takes a yeah. lot of the the ill he's- will. He's the one doing a lot of the bad stuff. Yeah. You can't hate Clooney, right? I guarantee there's something about him. He's got a magnetism. Even if you took him and put him in the, the role of the pedophile in the movie Happy, mm-hmm. Happiness, I think that, you, that, that people would still sympathize with him. Mm-hmm. There's just something about Clooney. That's it. Yeah. So this actually, this it's like segs right into my, my first talking point was just Ulysses Everett McGill as... Odysseus, because he's kind of, you know, he is a take on like he, you know, there's a lot of like, like thematic overlap, like he, you know, his like his his talkingness, his sort of his penchant for false identity and disguise, all very Odyssean. But the decision to kind of play him up is kind of, a, I mean, this is just the movie generally kind of likes to turn things on its head and like any self-seriousness is kind of upended by like, you know, goofiness. And he's not as effective as Odysseus sort of is in a way. Like he gets his, he, he gets conned himself. He gets his butt whooped, which is stuff that would almost never, which would never really happen to Odysseus in, at least in Homer. You know, his wife actually is leaving him. <laughs> yeah. But there were traditions in the in ancient myth where that's the case too, mm, right? Yeah. Um, and so I wonder, I mean, again, this is probably me being too much of a goddamn classics professor. Yeah. But I wonder to what extent we can see this as, as the type of reception Odysseus would have had in satire, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm. Or in theater play. Right? So we have him in Euripides' Cyclops, and I, I'm sh- I don't know if they did, but I'm pretty sure the Coen brothers didn't read the Cyclops, right? <laughs> but he's sort of an idiot there. Yeah. You know, I mean, just like doing whatever he wants, not thinking. And, I, you know, I, I think what, what it comes down to is that there, there's a range of, like, characteristics you can activate in Odysseus. Mm-hmm. Is he going to be a lovable oaf mm-hmm. who's accidentally 
be successful, right? Um, or is he going to be sort of a, a, a manipulative uh, assassin? Yeah. Um, and so they, they went that way. I was reading a I was reading an article by um, Janice Siegel in Museon, just kind of talking about this. But like in the ways that like the Coen Brothers like really gets like we're talking about they really get at of a Odyssean thing. And one of the, I didn't sort of realize until I, I was reading this article, but I noticed was that like his sort of out of placeness. And like, particularly through the way, like his constant search for Dapper Dan, where he's always like, he goes to the convenience store and he's like, this place is two weeks from everywhere, isn't it? And it's like, I can't get the, like, I need my Dapper Dan. And then he gets the home Dan, and, and the suitor is using his hair pomade. Yeah. And like that as just this like very like poignant sort of like, it's, I mean, like fairly subtle, but like really grasps his like out of placeness yeah. that he kind of experiences. Well, and that's a, one of those things where, and I've talked about this, you know, before at more of an aesthetic negative um, aspect, but these aspects of the Odyssey's sort of, uh, you know, problems with nostalgia and homecoming are so centralized in the tradition that follows, right? In literary traditions and in um, uh, cinematic traditions that at some point, to go back to your, your much earlier question, the authority of who decides to make these connections doesn't much matter, mm -hmm. right? I think that, that that point there, is, is the out of placeness, right, is, is something that, I mean, of sort of male protagonist in the 80s and 90s is something that comes up again and again, right? Mm -hmm. Clooney does it in a pretty, um, I mean, in an affable way, right? And through that moment, the pomade, through everything else, like he, 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 he particularizes it into small things mm -hmm. that sort of, again, in a Homeric way are metonymic for the, the bigger divides. Eli's losing it. I, just, I, was like, yeah. I know my sister and I will still quote and say like, "How's my hair?" Yeah, I feel like walking to a. Yeah, he like wakes like, up. He's like, yeah. my "Hair, <laughs> how's my hair?" So yeah, I I see that as that nomadic device where it's like you think about this person and this thing that they're always doing and that repetition over and over again. That it's so Homeric. I never even thought about that before. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's like there's a lot of things like Odysseus, like. My like sort of irreverent, pithy little take is like Odysseus in the Odyssey gets a lot of baths and makeovers. You know, he's constantly getting like he's constantly getting like sort of he has like I almost call it like a magical girl transformation. You like in like a like Sailor Moon yeah. or something like that, where he's like whirled around and he comes out shiny and oily and beautiful. Yeah. Well, the, and and then just I mean back to the I know I've already said this theme, but I want to hit it again. This the power of song to affect homecoming, mm -hmm. and I meant both of those in the effect and affect is central to the beginning of the movie. So when I go back and look at it now, I mean the fact that like he drives his way home through the performance of this song that depends upon others, right? The man of constant mm -hmm. sorrows, and of course I don't know again if they were keyed into it, but central to being a hero in ancient Greece is causing suffering and suffering yourself. Mm -hmm. And there's something about like. Uh, you know, there's something very true to that in the character of Ulysses in this movie, mm -hmm. right? Because he screws over other people. He's constantly getting screwed over. And it's just a sort of an like emblematic moment. Um, the, uh, that siren scene, too, again, the sirens are one of the biggest tropes from the Odyssey, mm -hmm. right? But, I mean, it's a beautiful scene with a beautiful song mm -hmm. that really builds upon that other, that popular song that gets him home. And is in a way so tied into Greek song culture. Yeah. One of the things that I kind of wrote down is that like, again, it may be like intentional, accidental, me just reading into it, but like song is so hugely 
important like it, it it's song is very similar in both sort of like the odyssey and, and this movie and just like it's like meta poetic like there's constantly people in the odyssey kind of singing about odyssey like stuff yeah. and characters like like the um the mr lund the radio guy who mm-hmm. wikipedia sort of says is is a stand-in for homer but then my immediate mind went to like character like Phemius or demonicus which is again like yeah. me reading into that into the text like i there's very little evidence, but like him as, as the sort of device by which Odysseus's song like gets out there. Well, again, and you know, if you want to buy into Demodocus or Phemius being standards for Homer, then it's all good. Right? Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. We're talking about, yeah, I mean, we're talking about, too. <laughs> we're talking about Alamorph. So these are variations on themes about the relationship between identity, song, mm-hmm. uh, and achieving homecoming. Yeah. And, and you know, another thing that I really like about um, the movie is the idea that there are signs that allow you to confirm who people are, even when they're lying to you. Mm. So Odysseus, and Odysseus here doesn't have control of it, or Ulysses doesn't. Like, so the hair thing is like, I need my pomade because my hair is who I am. Mm-hmm. Right? And then at the end, the whole thing, oh, he gets, he, get, he, gets, he has to get this ring, the original ring, so his wife will marry him again. And then at the end, we're like, I guess it doesn't really matter that much. Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole like toying with signs of identity in the epic. Uh, sorry, in the movie, um, that reminds me of the epic sort of resistance to positive identification. The beards, um, all the 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 the, mm-hmm. the fake beards, and uh... well, and that's part of the disguise motif. Um, I mean, yeah. So I, I guess I guess I'm, I'm uh, the more we talk, the more it sounds like I'm a super fan of the movie. <laughs> but maybe I'm just excited. Circling back around, I, like sometimes I like I like write out these themes that I think I'm gonna go off on for like five minutes, and then I say what I'm gonna say in like two sentences, and like oh, I guess really that's just it. <laughs> but but I was I was gonna circle back around to Pete and Delmar, the sort of Odyssean crew, where we were sort of talking about like you know uh, I mean I think like really the main I guess like thematic or character departure in this movie from like is like if this were a more homer like odysseus he would have never picked pete back up from he would have never busted pete out of jail again he would have just been like all right because you know odysseus leaves a trail of bodies in his wake you know that's like one of the central contentions at least to me is that you know like the the crew kind of actively work against him in many points where like there's a mistrust like they open the bag of winds that that throws ruins everything they eat the cattle of the sun which also ruins everything. And there's a little bit like that too, where like in the beginning particular, where ever it is like his frustration with being with these kind of two, <laughs> uh, at first glance, kind of dimwits. Yeah. Well, they drag him off the train. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, who, yeah, who elected you leader of this outfit? Uh, all of that. And they, they do sort of walk him into situations that become difficult when they go to... Uh, what is it? Um, Hogwash, the his cousin's farm. Oh yeah, sort of. He's keen. Yeah, it's kind of a <laughs> it's kind of a be- betrayal situation. Not necessarily exactly by them, but yeah, I feel like they they often are rather antagonistic to him here, as as much as he's using them as tools to do things. When I um, when I see them, um, just sort of the trio, it, it reminds me of like. The Three Stooges. Yeah, and that's the movie that they go see, I think. (laughs) And there's something very sort of like old, like pre-war movie-ish, moviness uh, about their dynamic. 
that yeah, and this is one place where I think that somebody remembered the Odyssey and forgot that Odysseus had crew people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and ended up having them all killed, right? It's also another thing where it's clear that they haven't really read the end of the epic, mm-hmm. you know, but that's okay because it's a movie. And I think part of the problem, I think one of the things that people forget or, or often overlook with the Odyssey that we have is that you didn't have to individuate either the sailors or the suitors, mm-hmm. right? And some people think that our version of the Odyssey is the first to really do this, to give them individual voices um, and to let them be sort of real people for various reasons, right? So you get it. I think you're working with a different sort of genre and set of expectations with that sort of slap, slapstick, like dim-witted companions. And then you have a more lovable um, Ulysses because despite how much they, they, they cause him grief, he rescues them at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like a general like massaging of his character vis-a-vis George Clooney to just be more audience appealing. Like, well, I had something else about to say, but well, it just Tim Blake brain. Nelson, I think Delmar is the only yeah. person who had he had the classics degree, right? So he was they said yeah. is like the, Brown, the only person who had yeah. read the Odyssey. If we if we're again like lovely. so they claim. <laughs> so which, they claim. I mean, I'm in, yeah. I'm inclined to take yeah. the Coen Brothers uh, assertion with a, a table with a with a grain of salt, but for sure. Yeah. yeah. But I, I like the idea that that everybody's sort of you know blindly going forward, and <laughs> and Tim Blake Nelson's here in the background, like I I know what's going on. <laughs> well, we didn't talk about like so we're talking about differences between the Odyssey and, and this. I mean, the biggest one that I don't see people mention that much is Telemachus. Mm, yeah. 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 He's, someone just yeah. got six, seven dollars or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what, someone just say, well, Telemachus is just total bullshit. Can we just take him out? What does it do to the dynamic of the of the story if there's no son? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Or, or like the, the, the active decision, the active decision to have... Because again, like I think nothing is ever by accident in in these kinds of yeah. movies. So there was a it was a very deliberate choice to have Odysseus have six daughters. Yep, and and or just like and just even be I like there's a a thing maybe on the tip of my brain, but I can't like put a of like the significance. I don't know what it is, but it seems like it would be significant that like Odysseus's home life is surrounded by women. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I don't know what that is. Uh, and the basic setup, I mean, he's not Odysseus we know. Like he's in prison, not for war, right? And he, but if I remember correctly, he breaks out because he hears his wife is going to get yeah. remarried. Mm-hmm. He he was uh, practicing without a license, practicing law without a license. That was his. <laughs> that was why he was in jail, <laughs> right? And, and this is like, I mean, that sounds very Odysseus, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but you know, he 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 didn't try to get out earlier. You know, he's just I'm going to run out now. It's just something. I mean, again, it's all it's a winking, mm-hmm. right? This is a very different romantic character, uh, and there's no room for 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 others. And then we're actually just sort of speaking of room. There's also we we we've been talking this whole time about sort of how this is or is not Homeric or, or Greek or classical or. or whatever you know this isn't your dad's odysseus um but there's like this other sort of concurrent and this touches in on like the sort of three stooginess element to to delmar and and pete and and everett but like was the coen brothers are like kind of if they are if there's one thing i think we can say for certain is that they're kind of movie nerds but so there's this like the the sort of cinematic motifs and things like that but then also the element of like sort of southern mythology that gets sort of layered onto classical illusions or what have you or like you know like like tommy is kind of the most obvious one that that jumps out you know the the guitarist who sells his soul at the crossroads too what also made me think of that movie crossroads with with um 
Ralph Macchio. Right. But <laughs> well, like this, this kind of this other element of like the meshing of sort of like American Southern motifs and myths and things like that. And so many of the images are, I think of like Dust Bowl photographs, like Eudora Welty's. Mm-hmm. I think the the children carrying blocks of ice is mm-hmm. a, is a beautiful photograph and i wrote down another one the house with the bottle trees when they go back and that the cabin i guess so there there yeah. are all these like kind of familiar images that sort of yeah do fill out that mythology of like the south or that sepia tone that they put over everything yeah it was like <laughs> one of the it was like photograph. one of the first movies to to use like a digital like sepia tone effect to give it that like dustiness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and this yeah. is where this is where in response, like in 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 retrospect, thinking back on where we were and where mm-hmm. we've come from, my digging of the movie yeah. changes. Right. Um, so when I look back at it, their their nostalgia is not for an American mm-hmm. South. Their nostalgia is for a grammar of filming the American mm-hmm. South. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when I was thinking, looking back at it, I was like, so this is pre-World War II Mississippi, and there's only one real Black character mm-hmm. in this movie, right? And he gets to be instrumentalized for giving them powerful music, right? Which is clearly a metonym for, you know, the stealing of Black music um, by, by white people and then using it for commercial success, which is cool enough, I guess, if they're making a comment. But it's just sort of like, you know, after 20, 2016 in Hail Caesar, the Coen brothers got some shit for not having any diversity mm-hmm. in Hail Caesar. And like their basic take was, well, what's the problem? Like, it's just a movie about the 50s. It's our representation, right? But, you know, Mimesis builds representation, mm-hmm. right? And continues it and creates a discourse of aesthetics of its own. So when I look back at my own experience again of, um, of that movie, I think of the fact that if I saw it now, I would be like, where are mm-hmm. the people of color? Yep. It's Mississippi. But at the time, it didn't occur to me at all. Yeah. It was just like the, the thing that it was one of my first impressions was like the first shot is the chain gang. Mm-hmm. We're all black men. And then our main characters were presumably the only three white guys on the chain gang. And and all of the other, they're, you know, not just sort of Tommy is the only sort of named and sort of more active character but there's like at the end where they're being they're about to be hung and there's the guys who dig the graves and they're just sort of singing and with the actually the other is is the the blind like the tiresias blind prophet guy mm-hmm. at the beginning and who kind of bookends the film yeah. but yeah it's it seems very well, so it's, it's the it's the, the magic black person motif yes it's yeah. true you get to be it's all these things it's just marked you don't you're not just a human being right yeah. And I think that that, mm-hmm. that makes the movie harder to show now because how how can you how can you show the Ku Klux Klan scenes, right? It's yeah. like yeah, it's funny, um, yay, like it, it's it's farce. I, I don't know, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think it changed. It shows like how I've changed. I mean, I remember my so my wife isn't white; she's Indian, and I remember her saying early on her her criticism way back in '97 was Coen Brothers just make movies for white guys. Yeah, <laughs> and at the time I was like, "Oh, that's just you, Shiraz." Um, and then now I'm like, "Well, I was an asshole." <laughs> but I'm also thinking about like how people who are interested in the history of film and in, in it have changed, right? So I think of someone like Quentin Tarantino, right, mm-hmm. who loves film as much as the Coen Brothers, but is more willing to play with the conventions and challenge it, right? Uh, can you imagine the Coen Brothers doing something like Django Unchained? 
Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems so far afield. Yeah, and, but I think about it, you know, I mean, the, the, these movies are harsh, and sometimes they go back to Pulp Fiction, which was six years before this movie, right? Look mm-hmm. at the black characters in that movie and say these are stereotypes, but they pressed the boundaries of filmic stereotypes and made them a little more interesting. And then later movies, you know, Jackie Brown, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Woman of Color in the lead. And these are things you can love film conventions and still challenge their whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so when I look back at that, what I see is sort of what I see today in the conversations we've been having over the past few weeks is that this movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, is sort of a perfect coalescence of classics and American film and whiteness. Yep. Yeah. And, and just the whiteness of all, well, I mean, obviously whiteness is whiteness, but like like the whiteness of all three. Yeah, right? just sort of like bringing them together and sort of a, a toxic nostalgia. Mm-hmm. That's then why I go yeah. back to the music, right? <laughs> it's like, for, you know, go back to 2010, right? Um, 2010 was when the Tea Party was, was getting huge, right? And yeah. so much yeah. of what we saw in the past few years um, and the white supremacist resurgence um, goes back to people disbelieving that we could possibly have a black president, right? So mm-hmm. like, what were the Tea Party is protesting about, if not that, right? And I remember like watching the Prohibition era stuff come out and listening to music that was taking the R&B and the jazz out of American music again and thinking, is this racist? And not being sure. And now looking back and saying, okay, yeah, it was. It was part of like a different type of whiteness because many of the guys who were in opening Prohibition era bars mm-hmm. ended up joining the Proud Boys. Not all of them, but I'm saying there's, a, there's an area there of, yeah. of uncomfortable overlap for me, where it was mm-hmm. sort of cultural exploration of the of the zeitgeist, right? Um, <laughs> it w- was huge. And, you know, Eli, you mentioned your parents bringing home, home the movie. I think back to all the movies that I watched from like late 90s into, you know, 2010, 12. I mean, we're still in that era where like, oh, race is a problem we don't have anymore. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. And I feel that like that well, Brother Warrick, though, was just part of that lie. And so then when I go back and start delighting in storytelling, I had that same sort of feeling that I always have, which is, well, this is complicated and hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a disappointment or a letdown feeling. mm -hmm. But maybe like feeling let down in my my past self that Mm -hmm. I didn't see it soon enough or that I I didn't call it out sooner. Well, I feel, I I, I don't feel so let down to myself. Maybe it's because I have such a strong sense of ego. No, (laughs) I think it's more that, you can see how pervasive sure, the sure. Uh, that, 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 that racism and cultural discourse is mm-hmm. right? and how hard yeah. it is to see your way out of it and how hard it would have been for the Coen brothers to have made a movie that didn't. Yeah. And it, it, it becomes like for, for me, like the sort of the most obvious factor of like that they're in this, this illusion of like post racism or, or whatever it is. It's just the fact that the three characters sort of are like unproblematically not racist in, in almost a like, right. Like in almost like an, inex- not like inexplicable, but it's just like, it's just like we, the audience take it for granted that like our protagonists have no sort of qual or like have no hangups right. or anything. Yeah. <laughs> like how, how, you know, like like the whole scene where they go into the radio station, they're like, Oh, well we are black <laughs> except for, and they're, and they're like switch it around or, or the, you know, like when, when they help sort of Tommy in that, um, like us just sort of taking for granted and then like the, the easiness of just being like, oh yeah, there are these villains called the KKK, but they're like cartoonishly villainous. Yeah. And then now when it's like 
these people might be your neighbors and your cousins and stuff. It's a little more. But also, like, I mean, it's part of this, uh, you know, the, the, the more than toxic discourse that, that racism is, is a clear thing of, of good and evil, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just not, and it's not also a patterning of the way we engage with each other. It's not systematic. It's not psychological. And that, you know, someone like those three guys who are the three white guys in prison probably be a little racist, but in a way that, you know, we would uh, not understand, but would see in contrast with the others, right? So, but that's a problem with yeah. the storytelling genre, right? Is that it's satire, it needs to be fun. And it comes down to back to, so the beginning, my discomfort with Coen Brothers movies to begin with is at the end of the movies, what do you have left? Like, what have you been made to feel? What have you learned? What do you take with you? Like, is it just a good time? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, uh, that's sort of like, it's where I break down when it comes to Hellenistic poetry, right? Is it playing? <laughs> is it all illusion, right? Is there any meaning at the end? Yeah. <laughs> having just having just written a dissertation, largely featuring among others the works of Nicander, uh, my my takeaway is the the takeaway is that snakes are scary uh, and don't <laughs> with them. But no, but I completely take your point. It's like yeah, it's like it's like fun and and referential and joking and learned but in almost a very like maybe shallow like a hollow way useless way and now we're like now we're like turning on this movie after like i know uh, but (laughs) but, i mean but that's the thing i mean the the challenge and this goes to you know everything i've been thinking about about classics in the past few years and past few weeks the challenge is to be able to see what's good and what you love and to acknowledge what you don't right and and Mm -hmm. how you live with it and how you let it change you or not and I mean, it's still, there are moments in that movie that are so beautiful, the strange ending flood, right? The music, and we can say the music is what it is, right? But it's still beautiful and haunting. Yeah. I can't hear that Alison Krauss song and not be transported. Yep. Yeah. Just an, another sort of thing I noted, or just like is the way I kind of like made a little note of, and I, this I think is actually tying into everything we just talked about. It's just like the way that like Latin works in this movie. Cause there's like, and I think it does like inform some kind of like, like Everett's whiteness, quote unquote, or something, or his, it, it ties into his, you know, Odysseanness, or his like, you know, his need for, for sounding really smart, mm-hmm. but just like, cause all the, the, there's like a bunch of Latin phrases that get sort of rolled out, particularly around his, I think exclusively around his character. He's like Amor Fidelis and Potty's on the, you know, goddamn Potterfamilius. <laughs> Everything's bonafide. <laughs> I don't really have actually much more to, I don't think I have anything really insightful to say other than just like n- noting it. <laughs> no, it's, but I mean, again, part of the larger sort of cultural reception uh, of classics, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is how, and that's something that's probably not too off, right? This is how someone who's not that well, uh, no, this is how someone who's a bit of a con man would make himself mm-hmm. seem intelligent and persuasive in the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or it just, it like, Oh, sorry, Eli. No, it's like the the weird weird words that he uses when he doesn't need to use them. Like <laughs> any of you learn it in the metallurgic arts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I probably also just kind of love. I really love like his dialogue. Just kind of like oh, oh God, it's I, excellent. I it. It's so good. <laughs> what was I about to say? It almost it reminds me too of uh, this is like a very disparate movie in a lot of ways, but of like that scene in tombstone where, where Doc Holliday and uh, Val Kilmer and um, Johnny Ringo have their like Latin off, but they're really just like quoting phrases at each other, mm-hmm. sort of devoid of any kind of outer meaning. They're just like, they're, it's like, yeah, it's just like, the idea is that they're both sort of quote unquote educated, but that they just like, these are just like 
standard Latin phrases that just kind of, and you can read out the context and stuff. Cause one of the last things I think he says is like, Requi, uh, in pocket or yeah. something like that. But yeah, it's just like, there's like a, it's like a performative Latin. Uh, well, is Latin ever anything but? I mean, yeah, I mean, we, you've seen living Latin. <laughs> like Elvis in Latin. Sorry, shots fired. <laughs> Looking at you, Paidea Institute. Uh, <laughs> I'll probably edit that out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but but I, I, they probably wouldn't have made it this far in the podcast anyway. That's, That's true. true. <laughs> I might leave it in. I gotta yeah, give, give myself a. I, I should, we should make some enemies. That's our next stage for this. That production. is how you get clicks, right? right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did we not learn anything from Trump? Oh. True. <laughs> yeah. I know, the other like little funny thing that I know about that KKK scene is that the chanting they do is supposed to sound like the Wizard of Oz monkeys mm-hmm. and so it's supposed to be like the, the wizard of oz yeah the more at one point they say like we need to find like a wizard or a seer and then i also like recently kind of note somebody pointed this out it's like they do find a wizard it's just like not the kind of wizard they were expecting yeah <laughs> yeah but we're just i mean the other thing I was, I was watching this with tracy and we were like there's no way in hell they would ever be this either coordinated or musically inclined um to be like kind of doing like marching band formations around each other <laughs> uh, but it's terrible no, yeah. It, yeah, it is. Yeah. It, it makes it, you know, I, it's something we joke about now, right? If you think back to, um, what is it, uh, Blues Brothers, mm-hmm. which is actually, I think, closer in time to now to uh, Oh Brother in Art, Where Art Thou, than we are, right? Yeah, by one year, Blues Brothers was 1980. Yeah, but it's a whole funny motif that there are Illinois Nazis. Right? Yep, yep. I remember watching it when I was a kid. And thinking, ha, there are no Nazis in Illinois. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. No, it's, I'm like I'm, I I've talked enough, or to, like, to, but if you guys, uh, I, I like I've, I've gone through I think pretty most most of my things that I. All right. So how how do you usually close it out? Do you just like make things explode? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. So I have the soundboard right in front of me, and I just hit the like air horn. Like, dur, 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 dur. <laughs> there's there's this this ad though. Like, there's one of those. This is gonna seem really random for like a second, but I'm going somewhere. Like markers that you grew up in a particular time and place that like only other people who grew up in that particular time and place would like recognize. And one of them was, and I I was I grew up in upstate New York in like the '90s, basically, and. There was this this ad on the radio for a place called Guptals that was like a roller rink, fun and games, like Playland kind of thing. They always had like, they had this like very iconic sound of sound effect. And then they'd be like, Guptals. And then it was also called Secrets. And it goes, Secrets. And then like the tagline was, all your friends will be there. And that kind of like radio. And that like, you know, like from Monster Truck announcing, it was like that voice. It was like, all your friends will be there. So, like, anyone who, like, grew up in the, like, kind of capital district area between, like, 1980-whatever and 2000 would would recognize, like, all your friends will be there. Which is uh, which reminded me of the soundboard thing, which, all right, I'll stop because that was going off on a tangent. There was a connection. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But it's any any closing thoughts, and but or I can I can walk us out. Well, I, if I could make a yeah, closing thought. Uh, first, I want to thank you for having me revisit the movie. And I, I think one of... One of the things we don't do enough is to revisit old movies and treat them as cultural texts in sort of the same way we would some of our own. Um, I, I firmly believe we should do this with albums as well. And we have, the, again, we have this like reluctance to do so because it's sometimes embarrassing and uncomfortable, right? 
but I think even in our discussion today, we could be like, yeah, that was kind of weird. That part was good. And it's all part, I think, of a, of a process of like, like understanding ourselves and our place and time better, which is a lot better than just sort of closing our eyes and saying everything is good. Let's just move forward. Yes. Thank you so much for like very eloquently putting a lot of my feelings about this movie into words in a way that I have not been able to before. <laughs> I've been yeah. it for a while. Yeah, no, like we love having guests because it like yeah. one like keeps things fresh, but two is like it, that it just it opens up the podcast in ways that I like freaking yeah. love and also it needs. Thank you so much for, for helping us out with this. Just like final plug, if people want to find more Joel Christensen on, on the interwebs or anything like that, where can they do that? Uh, well, I've got the website, sententiaantiqui.com. You could also just Google Joel Christensen Brandeis and, and, and you'll find me. Um, and I hang out on Twitter at, at Santantique, so S-E-N-T-I-Q, wait, S-E-N-T-I-Q. We'll tag you. If you want um, to see the kind of trouble I get in. <laughs> which is too frequently these days. I came across you, this, this is a weird, I came across you in a Wikipedia article not so long ago because it was about, so they were coming, the, the what are they, the grievance studies people were coming to UT oh. and we were reading, and Tracy and I were, Tracy was like, do you know about this? And I was like, no. And then we started reading about it. And then on the Wikipedia for like that book, your criti- your criticisms are, are cited. Yeah. Oh man. So when I was dealing with, what was it? James conceptual penis for a bit, like that guy's nuts. All right, I just want to say straight out there, keep that on the podcast, all right? Concept- <laughs> okay. don't, don't cut it. Nuts. <laughs> Come at me again. Uh, all right. No, no, he's, it's just like four years ago when that stuff came out, uh, and, you know, Matt Sears and I came out and we're like, these people are racist. Mm-hmm. Inside higher ed wouldn't let us say they're racist. <laughs> we're like, we don't let people call other people racist. And I was like, Okay. Yeah. But, Looks like a duck, quacks like a duck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like James, Lindsay, and crew spent like a like a couple of days just constantly adding us saying, You're just using straw man arguments. You're just using guilt by association. And I wanted, and I wanted to be like, You're using a list of logical fallacies, right? <laughs> I mean, like, just because you can call something a logical fallacy doesn't mean it is so, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I get excited. Uh, but like Larry King moments, like now we have Dr. Joel Christensen picking fights with <laughs> problematic academics. Here's the thing, like, look, they're, they're the clear record of, of these, you know, aggressive white debate me dudes. Yeah. Like they hassle women and people of color until they feel uncomfortable and unsafe, right? Well, there's a reason I think they also went to the business school. That's where they were talking at UT. Right. No, they did. And then like when, when somebody like me says something about them, like they ask me for a little bit and then they leave, right? Yeah. Why? Um, because I'm a full professor and a white dude, right? And they're not afraid and they're like, they can't get the same traction and it's stupid, right? And clearly shows what they're motivated by, right? Um, sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's good. I love it. But yeah, no, we were going to circle back around. But So you brought me there. I didn't even know I was on Wikipedia. I guess I need to spend more time Googling. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's a, that's a dark hole. Like there, there's like, you'd be better off doing many other things i'm sure but no but like seriously thank you again when we have guests those are the best episodes so i might try and fast track this one i'm having like a like a weirdly busy month because there's like a chapter that i need to submit at like the end of look i'm i'm not going anywhere i've been in this room since march last year i'm going to be in this room until march this year probably through it so you know and also um 
write something for the blog about this so we can get you guys some more views and clicks. Yeah, thank you. I need to, Eli yeah. and I, we need to actually talk about this because like, I don't have the headspace like exactly. Two paragraphs. I don't, it doesn't need to be fancy, right? Send yeah. me some word, I can add shit. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. All right, yeah. Thank you so much, man. If you ever, no, if you ever want to get back on the, the show, there's a movie, they're like, I gotta talk about this. No, if you, like, yeah, if you just want to hear me yell about stuff, just invite me. Love back. it, no, love absolutely. it. Absolutely. Love it, love it. All right, take it easy. <laughs>